0: The reading this evening is taken from Paul's second letter to Timothy. It can be found on page 1196. Page 1196. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3. But mark this. having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janis and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. And uh, do please keep that open in front of you. I think it'll be a help to you um, as we go through this passage. It certainly helps me as I preach it to know uh, you can check it out as we go through it. Shall we just begin with a prayer as we sit? We thank you, Lord, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's all useful. And we thank you for uh, the challenge of these verses, and we pray that you would uh, encourage us to stand firm as we walk with you in the Christian life. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I want you to uh, imagine um, that you are in the army And uh, we're going back a a few years, but you're off to Afghanistan and you're seeking out insurgents. The problem there is, of course, you can't spot the enemy, but they know exactly who you are. The only comfort is that you've been properly trained, uh, that you totally trust your commanding officer, that you've got a loyal bunch of comrades who you trust, and that you're well-equipped. The only nagging question in the back of your mind because of certain high-profile cases is, is my equipment up to standard? Now, the Apostle Paul, writing here to Timothy, uh, who is the leader of the Ephesian church, uh, is approaching the end of his life. And as we've been thinking in previous weeks, like a relay race, Paul has run his leg and he's passing the baton on to to young Timothy. And uh, as he looks around so there is much cause for encouragement. The church has grown from a tiny band of disciples in Jerusalem on the day of the resurrection to an international collection of churches, many of which were founded by Paul himself. But as well as encouragement, there's great cause for concern. Paul is writing here from prison, and he's in prison because of his preaching. People hate him because of the message. Many of Paul's followers have deserted him. And those who've stayed true are facing opposition and persecution themselves. Timothy, of course, is understandably daunted by the task. Any would-be church leader is, is daunted by the task, and especially if he knows that his kind of role model and mentor, Paul, is languishing in jail and thinking, well, if Paul's gone that route, then there's a good chance I might as well. And Paul is really urging Timothy in this last letter that he wrote that to stand firm in these difficult times, to endure hardships, uh, to guard the gospel, and rather than going low profile, to preach it for the next generation. And Timothy must have felt a little bit like that raw young soldier seeking out the insurgents. But they say that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so we're going to just pick up on uh, some of Paul's warning as well as his arming. And the first thing that Paul tells Timothy in our passage today is that we live in desperate times. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, in other words, uh, if you've been nodding off through the end of chapter 2, Timothy, wake up, mark this, there will be terrible times in these last days. And the last days that Paul is referring to is not simply the the few days or the the season leading up to the return of Jesus, it is the entire period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. If you look at the very beginning of Hebrews, it points out that uh, Jesus, after Jesus appeared, it says, now in these last days God has appeared to us uh, as as his son. So we're talking about the whole of church history, the last days. And Paul says these last days will be terrible times. Because Christians then and now are living in a very alien environment. And there will be great pressure to go soft, to go low profile, or actually even just to give up. William Ng, who was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral a hundred years ago, famously said, he who marries the spirit of the age will find himself a widower in the next And as Timothy and we face temptation to soft pedal and to go low profile, to buy into the world's values or even to give up, Paul says to us, no, these may be terrible times, but verse 10, you, however, are to live differently. And again in verse 14, as for you, continue in what you've learned. Verse 13, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse. But as for you, you continue. Don't give up, he says. Don't go soft. Face up to these times and stand firm. I just want to highlight three characteristics of these desperate times, these terrible times in verses 1 to 9. And... uh, Don't worry, although there are 18 different uh, words, we haven't got an 18-point introductory point. But I just want to highlight one or two things. The first thing is misdirected love in verses 2 to 4. Now this paragraph, beginning at verse 2, really makes a rather grim reading. They do look like terrible times. People will be lovers themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, and so on. And the beginning and the end actually sum up this whole list. Verse 2 says, lovers of themselves, concluding in verse 4, rather than lovers of God. Lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, misdirected love. And these people love self, verse 2, they're lovers of money, verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure. And this was Paul's take on... A Christless world. But we have to say, as you look down that list, it has a very 21st century ring to it, doesn't it? Narcissism, consumerism, human- humanism, hedonism. In short, it's a me first world. Me first and God last. If God at all. And of course, it's the absolute opposite of the great commandment where Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say love yourself with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and maybe love your neighbor if you've got time for him and forget about God. So this is the absolute opposite. Desperate times are marked by misplaced love. Secondly, desperate times are marked by empty religion. I don't know what you felt as you look through verses 2 to 4, but it does sound like a, a bunch of secular humanists, doesn't it? But the big shock about these people listed in these verses is, in verse 5, that they have a form of godliness. They're religious. They go to church. They sit week by week listening to the sermon. They might even be preaching the sermon. There's an outward show without any inward reality, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So Paul says to Timothy, Watch out, because this missed place love, these lovers of self, are found within the church as well as outside. Someone has called this candy floss Christianity. It looks fine and dandy, but touch it and there's nothing there. Taste it and it leaves you feeling sick. These are very challenging words for us here today because it's very easy to read verses 2 to 4, these people who are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, and, and to think, We do live in a wicked world, which of course we do, but actually to ignore the potential for our own spiritual lives to be nothing but candy floss. And as I've been reading through this passage over and over again this week, I've been challenged to face up to my own pride and my own boastfulness and my own greed and my own selfishness and my own ingratitude. And perhaps as well as a warning that we do live in terrible times, these are also verses that are a warning to us, a sort of spiritual health check for us all. So perhaps we could just take a moment to look back over verses two to four and ask Is God putting his finger on something in my life today? Is my love in any way misdirected? Is my religion empty? And then a third characteristic of desperate times is the cult of the open mind in verses six to nine. In verse 7, people are described as like this, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Always learning. Well, that sounds okay. But never able to acknowledge the truth? Doesn't sound okay. Now, in our enlightened post-modern culture, people regard having an open mind as a, as a virtue. And to a degree... It is. To have a closed mind that's never willing to think about other ideas, well, that is a sign that we are narrow, that we're not using our God-given minds, and indeed that we're spiritual pygmies. Of course, Christians must be thinkers. But the people who Paul is criticising here in verse 7 are the fence-sitters, The people who won't come down off the fence, one side or the other. Tolerance is their watchword. And all ideas, all philosophies, all lifestyles are equally acceptable. And the last thing that the fence-sitter wants is certainty or conviction. Those two words, certainty and conviction, are very dirty words for the fence-sitter. Now, C.S. Lewis described how, as a young man, he abandoned his early faith. And he describes it like this. From the tyrannous noon of Revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. See, the only things that he wanted to follow were things that were comforting and exciting. And the tyrannous noon of revelation, in other words, God's searching light, the midday sun, as it were, shining on our lives. Ooh, most uncomfortable. We don't like that, he says. Relativism, which is really what he's describing, is essentially doing what I want under the pretext of having an open mind, Uh, I am the final arbiter of the way I live my life. I'll do what I want. You do what you want, says the relativist. Uh, There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute error. There's no right or wrong. Relativism is a philosophy for lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And these people who, in verse 7, are always learning and never able to acknowledge the truth they might do well to reflect on the words of G.K. Chesterton, who said this, The purpose of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. So these are desperate times in which Paul writes, and in which we all live today, they're the last days. These are the hindrances to the gospel, and Paul's words have a very contemporary ring, I think. Now, as we all know, desperate times call for godly measures. And that's the second thing that Paul tells Timothy. Desperate times call for godly measures. Very tempting when things are desperate to, uh, to give up, to lose our heads, to be desperate, to give up, go low profile. But in these terrible days that Paul has outlined, he calls on Timothy to be different from the world around him. Verse 14, but as for you, he says, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. And in verses 10 to 17, Paul offers Timothy and us some godly measures to help us to keep going, to endure, to stand firm when we'd really quite like to give up. First up, to keep going as a Christian in these terrible times, we need godly people. We can't manage to live the Christian life on our own. I've been very struck reading through Acts and... Uh, particularly chapters 13 and 14 this week where Paul is in those towns he mentions in verse 11 of Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, how much Paul relied on his traveling companions. You know, we think of Paul as the great lone ranger. Not a bit of it. He was always in a team. He's always surrounded by fellow workers. And here in 2 Timothy, he is now virtually alone in Rome. And he, as we'll see next week in chapter 4, He feels his aloneness very keenly. And we need to be surrounding ourselves with godly people. We can't survive on our own. That's why the church exists. We need each other. And that's why we need each other on a regular basis. That's why a home group is so vital, because... It's small enough to know everybody and everybody well. And if you're not there, you're missed. We need each other. That's why uh, perhaps a prayer triplet or a prayer partner or the little group of Christians that meet in your office or in your street or whatever, that's why they're so important to, to help us to shine our light in our particular patch because we'll all be tempted to go quiet and low-profile. We need godly people around us. We need other Christians, and they need us too. So I don't just come to church to fill up my own tanks and for my pleasure and my enrichment. I come to church to encourage other people and to support them too. We all need Christian role models. And if you've been going for a Christian more than probably about two months, we need to recognize that other people may be looking to us as a role model as well. Just notice a couple of things about godly people from verses 10 to 13. First, that Paul himself is a model of holiness. Verse 10, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings, and so on. Now, I imagine that few of us would dare to say those words ourselves to a younger Christian. You know, if you want to know how to live the Christian life, well, just look at me. Um, Well, I guess probably all far too conscious of our own sinfulness and inadequacies. But I think we do need to recognize that younger Christians will always look to older Christians for an example in these things, for an example in teaching, an example in way of life and purpose and faith, patience, love, endurance. So let me ask you, who are you looking to? Have you got an older brother or sister Christian? If you're a sort of Timothy, who's your Paul? Who are you looking to encourage you? Someone on whom you could model your Christian life. And also, who is looking to you? Slightly scary because we may not always be aware of who is looking to us. But perhaps as we ask ourselves that question, who's looking to me, we could ask ourselves, am I walking closely with God so that my Christian life is a good example to others? How can I help others on their Christian journey? And as I come to church on a Sunday evening, who might I be able to help and encourage? Who might I look out for? Who's new here? Who might be feeling A little bit of drift. Who needs befriending? Of course it's great to meet up with our old chums, but sometimes we just need to remind ourselves to get out of our boxes. Because people are looking to us. But as well as being a model of holiness, notice that Paul is also a model of suffering. Three times in verses 11 and 12, he mentions persecution. You may remember just before Christmas at the uh, All Together Tuesday church prayer meeting, we were visited by Bob Fu, who is a, a Chinese Christian and he's uh, studying in England at the moment, but uh, became a Christian in China and has spent time in prison for being a Christian. And he said to us, it was very challenging actually, he said Christians in China need two theologies They need a theology of salvation, in other words how to be right with God, and they also need a theology of suffering. And he went on to describe how when he became a Christian someone encouraged him to have a motto verse for his Christian life. Now I don't know what you would choose if just off the top of your head you had to choose a sort of motto verse. I was thinking the kind of verse I might choose might be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Something, you know, sort of, in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So Some verse that sort of talks about victory. Bob Fu said, as a young, new Christian in China, I chose as my motto verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Have a look at it. baby Christian in a communist regime where church leaders regularly get sent to jail, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. Will. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. So we need godly people around us. We need one another. Listening to sermons online is not the same. There's something about listening to it together, talking about it afterwards, praying with one another afterwards, urging each other on afterwards. You can't do that, listening to the Internet. And you haven't had a preacher praying for you through the week on the Internet, unless you know him personally. But as well as godly people, we also need God's word. This is the other thing that's going to help us to stand firm. Verses 14 to 17. Now this is a famous passage on the authorship and reliability of the Bible. And we had a whole sermon on this passage before Christmas, uh, reminding us that God's word speaks to us today. And if you want to listen to that again, it's on our fantastic new website. But this Uh, This evening, I simply want to highlight the context of these verses. Because the context of these verses about all scripture being inspired by God and being useful, equipping us thoroughly, comes in the context of a world where people love self rather than love God. Where people love pleasure rather than love good. It comes in the context of where people are swayed by all kinds of ideas but fail to grasp the truth. It comes in a context of a world where Christians are persecuted and suffer for their faith. Along with godly people, the one thing that will keep us going in a Christian life is God's Word. Look at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, his mother and his grandmother, as we saw in chapter 1. And how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 13. Evil men will go from bad to worse, but as for you... You continue in what you've learned. Continue in the scriptures. And hang on to the scriptures because the scriptures are the thing that can bring salvation. In other words, through the tough times, we look ahead. One day where we'll gloriously gloriously be with God in heaven. It may be tough now, but look ahead. Salvation finally awaits us in heaven. So the scriptures give us a kind of forward look. But also, the scriptures, verse 17, thoroughly equip us for every good work. So they're here to help us for today. I'm not on Facebook, but Margaret McVeigh is. And if you're a Facebook friend of Margaret's, you will have had a message from her yesterday. Have you got it on you, Margaret? It's, um, it's a really great little snappy quote and uh, it's, um, it's basically encouraging us to read our Bibles. Or well, anyone who's a Facebook friend of Margaret's can uh, call up their neat... It's a, just a lovely little quote about people who complain that God is silent. Thank you, Rach. Complaining about a silent God while your Bible is closed is like complaining about not getting texts. When your phone is turned off. I, r- I like that. Complaining about a silent God while your Bible is closed is like complaining about not getting texts when your phone is turned off. now turn it off. <laughs> Thank you. You see, God speaks to us. He's not silent. It's here, His word. He's given us everything we need, so that we're thoroughly equipped. We're equipped to be his people, the people he wants us to be in these terrible days. So that like the properly prepared soldier, we don't just have the greatest of all commanding officers. We don't just have a wonderful team of comrades, brothers and sisters in arms. But we're thoroughly equipped with this word of God for every good work. So Paul says to Timothy, follow my example and read God's word. Godly people, God's word. And we need them both to help us to persevere. Desperate times call for godly measures. So let's use them for his glory. Amen.
0: We're going to